This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. Six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated and worked there. My name is Anthony. I'm here with Sky. Hi, I'm here in Boise, not in Texas. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Sky, how's it been going? It has been going good. Nice. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. And again, not in Texas. Right. <laughs> Can you believe this weather? It's very nice. It's uh, much nicer than it is in Texas, where it's like 85 oh. degrees. No, thank you. I'm excited. Let's, I think, are you starting us off today? No, you're starting us off. I'm starting us off. Miscommunication. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, I am talking about, also, I didn't even ask you, how are you doing? Oh. How's Tree Fort for you? (laughs) It's been good. Yeah. I'm uh, so excited that I just was like, I don't care about Anthony. (laughs) I feel the same way. Um, (laughs) I, it's been a whirlwind. I, you know, I'm still working. So I showed up at the prison this morning and this, this week was the 150 year commemoration of Mm -hmm. the opening Mm -hmm. of the territorial prison. And so we had a big event on Monday. And so like I woke up this morning, went to a meeting and then, you know, cleaned up the yard. There's trash. There were coins all over Dennis's, Dennis the cat's grave out there. So I cleaned all those up. And then I took these 152 year old artifacts, uh, like clippings, newspaper clippings, all kinds of things from this case, and then took those to archives. So it was like, this has been a really interesting day. Nice. And now you're here. And now I'm here. All right. It's been good. (laughs) Sorry that I just was like, I'm moving on. Don't. Sorry. I'm so excited. I have not done an episode, and we tried to figure out how long none of us can remember. So I, today, am talking about number 3534 Ava Bowman. So my sources I have are her inmate file from the Idaho State Archives, Ancestry.com records, Newspaper.com records, um, especially the Idaho Daily Statesman, um, a dissertation from a University of Idaho student uh, called The Prohibition Movement in Idaho, 1863 to 1934 by Edison Klein Putman, and then just a single uh, Wikipedia article on Manassas, Colorado. So Ava Bowman was born Evelyn Dyer on February 24th, 1885 in Morgantown, West Virginia to Willie Dow Dyer and Matilda Elkins Dyer. She was the second of nine kids. She was also the second of two daughters. Um, All of the kids ended up living into adulthood and their father, uh, Willie, was a farm laborer. So that's probably why they needed so many kids. They needed all of them to work on the farm. Ava must have gone by the nickname Betty, and that's how she's actually listed in the 1900 census. So it was kind of like, who's this Betty? Oh, that's probably her. Um, So around 1890, the family moved west from West Virginia to Manassas, Colorado. Um, And many of Manassas' residents are of Spanish and Mexican heritage. They migrated north from New Mexico 
Manasseh actually was organized by Mormon pioneers in 1879, which is likely part of the reason that the Dyer family moved there, because Ava, throughout her incarceration and her early life, claimed Mormon faith. Then, in April 16, 1903, she was about 17, 18 years old, she married Joe Westenberg in Antonito, Colorado, and Joe was a German railroad worker. Um, he worked as a brakeman on the railroad line, and they had two sons, Joe Jr., who they called Joey, he was born in April 1904, and then Albert, who was born in 1907. But Joe and Ava were not meant to be. They got divorced on December 30, 1911, um, in Colorado, and she was granted custody of the boys. Less than a year after her divorce, she met a Scottish immigrant from Boise. His name was Peter Ferguson, and they married on October 9th, 1912 in Caldwell. And she then was under the name Evelyn Dyer. So she, her name for the most part is Evelyn. In fact, Ava's the only time in the prison she's ever known is that. So I'll, I'll call her Ava, but for the most part, her name seems to be Evelyn in all the records. Um, so I'm unclear if Ava met... Peter in Colorado and then they moved to Idaho or if she moved to Idaho at some point and they met here I couldn't find when she moved um, to Idaho but obviously she did Um, so they got married in 1912 then on September 24th 1916 the statesman reported that Ava was granted divorce from Peter quote upon the grounds of cruelty desertion and non-support And the article further stated that several times, without provocation, Peter beat her to the point of blackening her eye, and quote, on another occasion, it was shown by the testimony that he choked his wife until she was unconscious, end quote. So, yeah, perfectly, perfectly reasonable uh, divorce, uh, reason for divorce there. Then, according to the Idaho Daily Statesman, just three months after her divorce was final, on December 7th, 1916, Ava was arrested for unlawfully transporting intoxicating liquors through dry territory, which was a prohibition charge. Um, So she had been arrested under the alias Jenny Smith with a man who claimed his name was T.C. Hall. His real name was R.J. Stillwell. So remember, uh, prohibition in Idaho began in 1916, three years before the 18th Amendment was passed and ratified in the United States in 1919. So between 1908 and 1914, prohibition began in the state as a local option, and that meant that towns or counties could choose whether they wanted to be wet or dry, um, whether they wanted to allow alcohol or not. And then on March 1st, 1916, Governor uh, Moses Alexander, he signed statewide prohibition into law. Uh, But interestingly, this law still left a little bit of room for ambiguity, and Eva's prohibition case had a role to play in its continued ambiguity. So per the Evening Capital News, which you see here, um, after three prohibition cases came before Judges Carl Davis and C.P. McCarthy, they found that some conflicting and inconsistent laws made for very complicated cases. So the law made it clear that imbibing on alcoholic beverages was prohibited, but weirdly that left things like possession and transportation technically illegal, but not strictly illegal. And so what happens is Ava and Stillman's lawyers file what's called a demurrer, which essentially argues that no laws had been broken while also conceding the facts of the case. So they did this because there were smaller laws that did say that transporting and possessing alcohol was illegal, but the statewide law did not cover those charges. So in other words, they're saying, yeah, it is true that they had liquor in their possession and they were transporting it, but neither of those things are actually against the law based on this statewide law because they weren't drinking or transporting it to consume as a beverage, which... They obviously were, but you know, <laughs> I guess you can make what? that argument that yeah. technically we didn't know if they were going it's to drink not, it or yeah, not. Totally. Yeah. So 
Judges Davis and McCarthy come up with a response to this demur, and their judgment is that the, quote, the mere possession is not prohibited, nor the transporting, unless it is stated, transported for beverage purposes. Judge Davis held that the statewide prohibition law superseded all other laws wherever that law is inconsistent with other statutes, end quote. And so the judges declare that that most recent law takes precedent over those smaller ones that said transporting um, and and possession were illegal. So then um, the prosecuting attorney, after the judges make this ruling, are given 10 days to change his charges against uh, Eva and RJ Stilwell and prosecute them if he still thought it was prudent. But on December 22nd, the Daily Statesman reports that the case against Eva and RJ Stilwell were discharged and the state had to give the liquor back to the couple. So she seems that she gets off in this particular case, but this is going to be the first in a long line of prohibition charges um, for our friend uh, Eva Bowman here. Now, part of her problem was that on December 8th, 1916, just a day after her arrest for that transporting and possession charge, she married a man named Sidney Merle Bowman in Malheur County, Oregon, just across the Idaho-Oregon border. And together, Merle and Eva really like to possess and transport alcohol. Whether they like to drink it, I'm not completely sure. So, um, in fact, Merle was not the most upstanding citizen overall because in the summer of 1918, Merle was charged with grand larceny for stealing, quote, three buck lambs and two ewe lambs from the farm of Harry Sherman Briggs. He pled not guilty. Um, no newspapers followed up on this story, so he must have gotten off. Um, <laughs> why did he get off? I mean, or why, why? why was he stealing? Yeah. Were they helping him transport? Or? Yeah, he could, uh, like, I, no, I don't know. I, I just, okay. so June 10th, so it's about a year later after he's booked or charged with grand larceny, uh, Merle, Eva, and Eva's son, Joe, Joey, who's only 15 years old at the time, they're arrested and charged with having liquor in their possession. Their bond was set at $500 each, but I think they're doing pretty well in the prohibition business because it all gets paid, all get released. Then a week later, the case was dismissed, and this is from the statesman from June 17, 1919. Quote, the case presented some unusual phases, as seems to be the case with Eva and prohibition. It was found by the judge impossible to connect Merle Bowman with the charge since he was in Boise when his wife and stepson were arrested just as they had driven to the cabin on Dry Creek where the cashed liquor, 250 quarts of whiskey, was found by Sheriff Faust. No whiskey was found in the possession of either Mrs. Bowman or her son, but prosecuting attorney Albert Delana hopes to establish a case of constructive possession. His argument is that Mrs. Bowman possessed this liquor and had driven out with her son in their car to get some of the cash when she saw the sheriff's auto, which lay in waiting nearby, and scenting something was wrong, turned back and was arrested by the sheriff just as she started to turn her car, end quote. So uh, Sheriff Emmett Faust and the Bowmans do not get along. They are constantly getting in trouble and like getting off. And he's constantly arresting them and they're constantly getting off. It's actually kind of fun to watch, to be honest. Um, So in early July 1919, the sheriff arrested Merle with possession and transporting liquor. This time, Merle did actually have 48 bottles of whiskey in his car. Both the car and the alcohol were seized and he got out on a $1,000 bond. Then 20 days later, the sheriff again arrests Merle for carrying concealed weapon. Then a month later, on August 21st, Merle is found guilty of his transporting liquor charge and sentenced to a $300 fine and six months in the county jail. Then, just a week later, on August 28th, 
Eva files a suit, quote, asking return of an automobile seized by Sheriff Faust in the arrest of Merle Bowman July 1. The plaintiff prays for $1,400 at 7% from the date of the seizure in the event the machine cannot be returned, end quote. So after all of this, the sheriff and Merle go back and forth. She says, fine, I want that car back, which I think is very funny. And so actually, three days later, on August 31st, Judge McCarthy orders the cash bond of $1,000, which Eva had paid after Merle's prohibition arrest returned to her. So he ends up kind of releasing Merle from this charge. She gets $1,000 back. And then on February 6, 1920, from the Daily Statesman, quote, Evelyn Bowman won possession of an automobile, which the sheriff's office had seized last summer when Judge Charles P. Reddick returned a judgment in her favor, end quote. And so how did Merle celebrate getting the car back? By speeding around the streets of Boise and getting caught for it. (laughs) He uh, failed to show up in court to pay his fine for this. Um, And then uh, in June 1920, uh, after he gets his car back, gets caught for speeding, um, Merle was, quote, the object of an exciting chase, which ended in his capture and resulted in the confiscation of Sheriff Faust of about 100 quarts of liquor, end quote. In October 17th, 1920, there's a brief mention of of Eva in the Daily Statesman, um, and it's um, the case of uh, H.H. Bryant uh, and son against Evelyn Bowman for the collection of a note alleged to be due to the plaintiff was dismissed and the plaintiff ordered to pay the cost. So H.H. Bryant and son was actually a local automobile mechanic whose shop was on 11th and Front in downtown, um, which is now part of the Simplot complex of Jump, so just like straight over, um, which I thought was pretty cool. So then finally, after this, this court case, the rivalry finally seems to die down, and Eva and Merle stay out of the spotlight for nearly three years until March 4th, 1923. From the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, Cora Gaskill of Boise and Ava Bowman of Burley were arraigned before Carl Noes, Just- Norris, Justice of the Peace Saturday, on charges of procuring for immoral purposes, end quote. Now, interestingly, it says she's from Burley. I don't know when she moved there. The 1920 census places her on North 16th Street in Boise, and every other address I have for her lists her in Boise. She, when she comes in, she's from Ada County, so I don't know um, why that is. So because of the nature of this crime, which immoral purposes at that time meant prostitution or sex work, so she was accused of, of procuring a young woman to become uh, a sex worker. And so the newspapers don't report on this. They don't want to give anyone any ideas. So the only details we have of her crime is from her perspective, and it's from a letter to C.C. Moore, who at the time was the governor of Idaho. Um, And if you want, this is the handwriting um, that I have. Um, And so if there were a few words I simply couldn't read. Um, So... Here's what I got from from the, this is the translation, so hopefully this makes sense. Quote, I have to go to the pen to serve time over a girl, and just as true as I live, I begged the girl to go right, and I even offered to give her a free room in my home if she wanted to go, I don't know what the word next is, and work by the day or just any way to help help her to keep her from going wrong. And as you know, she went to a, I think it says one house, one house Mrs. Gaskell and then they said I induced her to go there which I did not do as I am a mother and never in my life arrived or stayed even so much as one night in a house of that kind if I knew there's also no punctuation in this letter (laughs) I have been a teacher in the fourth grade in the primary class and then they're like she kind of writes above primary and it says Mormon church um, when my name was E. Ferguson and my life that has been one kind of a life I never wanted to see any woman or girl bad illegible word 
And I can say the truth with a clean conscience that I never have done nothing in that respect in my life. No, never will. So Governor Moore ends up replying and he says he sympathizes with her, but it's not really customary for the governor to interfere with judgments of the court. And so she's probably just going to have to serve her time. So as we know, Eva has experience with the Idaho courts. And so her lawyers file a demurrer. Now, I have never heard this word in any prison case that I've come up before. She does it twice. Um, but she does it, they do it to, quote, quash the information, end quote, on March 30th, 1923. And so basically, again, they say that the information filed against them is factually correct. There was a young woman who went to this, to Cora Gaskell's house, um, but it's not for the purposes of prostitution. And so the next day, Judge Raymond L. Givens ruled that, quote, the information is bad and that it does not set forth acts which it is claimed the defendants did in the commission of the crime, end quote. About a week later, the prosecuting attorney brought new information about the charge for procuring a woman for immoral purposes. Again, the lawyers file a demurrer and a motion to quash the information. And finally, this time, in front of Judge M.I. Church, the demurrer is overruled and a trial is scheduled for May. And so Eva's trial begins on May 3rd, 1923. Now, Cora Gaskell, whose house it was, uh, she was originally charged with Eva. Uh, she actually turned state witness and the charges against her were dropped. So from the Daily Statesman, quote, it was the contention of the counsel for the defense, as shown in the opening statement, that the girl over which the charge arose came to the house of Mrs. Bowman of her own accord, having run away from her home at Oakley, end quote. And the trial only lasted one day, and the jury deliberated only an hour and a half, and Eva was found guilty of procuring a person for immoral purposes. This is the only information I could find about her trial, so I don't know... The only like evidence that we have is that like yes she did come to Mrs. Bowman and Mrs. Bowman sent her to Mrs. Gaskell's house. So while the charges for Cora for procurement had been dropped, she did plead guilty to running a disorderly house. So her house was a house of prostitution, um, but there isn't necessarily evidence that that's why Eva sent her there. So immediately after Eva's conviction, her lawyer, Charles F. Reddick, announced that immediate steps would be taken to appeal to the state Supreme Court, and so Eva was released on bond. But in case you're worried, Eva won't stay out of trouble for long. Um, on July 3rd, 1923, while out on bail, Eva and Merle are arrested by Deputy U.S. Marshal on charges of possession and transportation of intoxicants. As we know, it's liquor. Um, about a month later, on August 12th, this charge against Eva is dropped. They cannot make things stick against her. I think it's so interesting. So while out on bond awaiting the ruling on her appeal, Eva is arrested four more times on prohibition charges. So if you want to change the slide. So here's, oh, no. <laughs> here's all of the, the mentions of her between 19, November 1923 and February 1925. So in November 1923, she is arrested with Merle and a, an associate named Joe Eberts on a warrant charging violation of the National Prohibition Act. On January 22nd, 1924, she is arrested again with Merle and Joe Eberts for possession of liquor. This case against Eva and Joe are dismissed. Merle is fined $350. On September 12th, 1924, she's arrested with her son, Joe Westenberg, on charges of violation of the Prohibition Act. On February 15th, 1925, she is arrested with Merle, her son, and another associate named Nettie Garrett on charges of possession and sale of moonshine whiskey and the maintenance of a public nuisance, which I think is fair. 
Eva was fined $100, sentenced to five months in the Twin Falls County Jail. Merle is fined $100, given 15 months at McNeil Island. He's violated this National Prohibition Act enough. They send him to McNeil Island, which is the federal penitentiary in Washington State. And her son, Joe Westenberg, is fined $100 and given four months at the Elmore County Jail. Now, presumably, uh, Eva is in the Twin Falls County Jail when the state Supreme Court sustained her original verdict and she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on July 25th, 1925, on charges of inducing a girl to enter a house of prostitution. So here's her intake form. Um, so we see her crime, inducing a girl to enter a house of prostitution. She is sentenced two to five years. She is 39 years old when she's received, born in West Virginia, occupation housewife, five feet, five and a half inches tall or so. Um, complexion, medium dark, weight 112 pounds, very small, uh, black hair, brown eyes, married. So it says here she has three children. I have no idea who this third child is. I thought maybe Merle had a child. I uh, couldn't find any evidence in the records of him having a child. In all of her census records, it's only her two sons with her. I don't know who this third child is. Um, both of her parents are living when she comes in. She left her parents home when she was 17. She's had religious instruction in the Mormon church, can read, can write, um, only attended school for eight years. Uh, her habits of life, she's a moderate drinker, so she probably does drink some of that supply <laughs> she's always transporting. She missed um, it, finally. Yeah. Um, she smokes cigarettes. She, the only other form of imprisonment was jail for bootlegging. Um, the name and address of her nearest relative is Mrs. M. Chilcott in Boise. Um, that's her mother. So her parents ended up getting divorced, and her, her mother remarried. And then peculiarity in build and feature, regular, she's very thin. Um, condition of her teeth, she has a bridge on each side. Um, but her teeth are fair. Um, so she was one of three women when she entered. She also came in with our infamous Lida Southard, who if you haven't heard her story, um, season one, episode 10, actually in with Edna Carlton, who was in for what's called the violation of the Mann Act of 1910. It was colloquially known as the White Slavery Act at the time. Um, basically, it was uh, a, an act that pro, uh, prohibited transporting women across state lines for the purposes of prostitution or sex work. They, police often used that even if they weren't transporting them for sex work like if a if a young woman left her family or whatever and crossed state lines they would then often arrest the man she was with for that um, act and Edna doesn't stay in for very long she ends up um, being prosecuted federally um, and then they would also be joined in the month by a woman named Juana Wilson who was in for robbery and so by the time she left she'd also come in contact with Mary Crumroy who was the one who ended up serving time at the mental hospital um, but would not have spent too much time with her so we don't have a lot about her time in prison. She first applied for pardon on February 27th, 1926. Uh, a petition was filed on her behalf, um, and it says uh, one of the reasons that they're applying is, quote, that numerous errors were committed at the trial of your petitioner's cause in the admission of evidence and the giving of instructions, all that were prejudicial to her. Yet the Supreme Court, after conceding this fact, said that such errors on the whole were insufficient to warrant a reversal of the judgment. Um, and then the, uh, the other reason is that they're applying for pardon is, quote, for the greater portion of imprisonment has been in ill health, and the prison physician and other physicians have advised her that an operation is necessary for her recovery, that your petitioner has heretofore refused to be operated on by the prison physician for the reasons that facilities for operations and nursing, which are to be had at the institution, are, in the opinion of your petitioner, not conducive to the success of such an operation as it is necessary for your petitioner to undergo, and quote. 
Um, and this is a pretty common theme. She she says that she's ill the whole time. And I don't know what this illness is. It's never mentioned um, in any of the articles I found on her. It's not mentioned in her prison file. Um, but this is a common uh, thread. And she's incredibly thin. You can see she doesn't look very healthy in her mugshot either. Um, she's not released uh, in February 1926. So again, in December 1926, she writes the State Board of Pardons um, and asks that the prison physician be permitted to appear before them so that she can explain um, how sick she is and why she's going to ask for clemency. Um, then she next came before the board in July 1927, and she says that on July 25th, uh, 1927, she will have served her minimum sentence. And she says, quote, the principal reasons that I'm asking for clemency are that my health is very bad and I need medical attention and treatment not regularly furnished here, and further confinement will further impair my health and probably endanger my life. Also, I am about to lose my property and my home by mortgage foreclosure because I cannot be out to take care of them. I pray that your honorable gentleman will give me your kindly consideration and give me a chance to go out and reestablish my home, try to regain my health, and to start over again, end quote. Um, there's another document. She says part of the reason she wants to be released is so she can go get her operation in Salt Lake City um, at the LDS hospital since she was a member of the LDS church. And she says, quote, in regards to work, I am married and have worked in my own private home for my family the last 10 years. And if I'm given a chance, I will do my best to make a good record, end quote. Uh, she was actually given a conditional pardon on July 7th, 1927 to be put into effect on July 25th, that same date she would have served her minimum sentence. Um, and the condition that she has to live by is that she report to the warden of the penitentiary once a month for a period of one year. And so she, at, by the time of her release, she served two years of her two to five year sentence. And she was actually given a full pardon 15 months later on October 6, 1928, five and a half years after her original sentence was handed out. So the 1930 census places her back at 16th Street in Boise. She's living with her husband, Merle, and her youngest son, Albert, and his wife, Joan. On May 28, 1933, her oldest son, Joey, actually dies from a possible heart blockage at just 29 years old. In 1941, she's listed both on Albert's World War II draft card and Merle's draft card, um, again, living at 16th Street. Then, according to the Idaho Daily Statesman, on April 1st, 1949, Eva filed for divorce from Merle, which was granted on July 22nd, 1950. She next appears in newspapers on April 1st, uh, 1956, so seven years after she gets that divorce. Um, she's fined $5 for speeding. Then, car troubles continue to plague her because six years later, she's actually sent to the hospital for observation after getting into a one-car accident on June 1st, 1962. She, quote, veered out of control before coming to rest. The auto struck two parked vehicles and crossed the yard of one home and an alley before coming to rest in a second yard, end quote. Um, that's really all it says about that. Um, and next we know of her is her death on October 8th, 1963, from myocardial perforation after being at St. Luke's Hospital for five days. And she was 78 years old at the time of her death. And this is her gravestone at Morris Hill Cemetery in Boise. And so that is um, our, our number 3534, Ava Bowman, who was in for inducing a girl 
to enter a house of prostitution, but I have to wonder if it's really because of all the prohibition charges, because yeah. doesn't seem to be much evidence Seems otherwise. Like, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Do you know what what happened to her kids? Were they old mm-hmm. enough, or did they go to the children's home? Um, I believe they were old enough. So her boys were born in 1904 and 1907. Oh. So her youngest was oh, you're gonna make me do math. Oh no. Eighteen. <laughs> Eighteen, okay. I think. Oh okay. Yeah, <laughs> My yeah. math is so bad. Um, so yeah, that's. Wow. Yeah. That's not, it's not a huge uh, story, but I I thought it was fun that there were several downtown spots Mm -hmm. that, that we know of as we're sitting in this beautiful conference room and can look out at jump where, you know, I I like the idea of one of these old, you know, like what are these model T's Uh around the streets here? Like, Mm. (laughs) like the cruise in downtown. Yeah. That's where Merle gets celebrates by just speeding around. Wow. So that is Ava Bowman. Excellent. But what have you got? I'm excited. I see that you have some visual stimulation for us. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm this is excited a, about it. Sorry, future listeners, um, but <laughs> this is mostly for the crowd inside today. This is why you should come to our live events. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, today I am talking about two individuals, uh, some interesting characters. My sources are the Idaho Daily Statesman on the Boise Public Library Service News Bank, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, the digitized collection of prison periodicals, The Clock, and the prison file housed at the Idaho State Archives. And I'm going to start here with uh, Captain Gilbert Talley. Yard Captain Talley was born in 1881 in Kansas, and he moved to Sweet, Idaho in 1888. He and his brother opened a store in Sweet in 1907, and they sold the business after running it for a few decades, and Gilbert decides to pick up and move to Boise, where he gets a job at the Idaho State Penitentiary, you know, lateral move from a, mm-hmm. running a merchant business to... Uh, same thing. Yeah, 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 and he ends up being one of the longest-serving officers at the prison. He worked from March 29, 1933, until June 23, 1960. Wow. So 27 years dealing with Idaho's hardest criminals, preventing and tracking down escapees, and even getting a fun nickname by prisoners <laughs> at one point in 1935. Uh, according to an oral history by another guard that served with him, C.W. Vanderford, quote, he was about six one, two or 3, almost bald, but gray-headed. He called a spade a spade, and that was it. His word was it. Try to capture how he, how he spoke in this oral history. And at the old pen, our newest permanent exhibit is called Disturbing Justice, and it goes over the history of riots and uprisings at the prison. And this local graphic artist, Alan Cladfelter, actually captured all seven of these in these comic book panels. And uh, here you can see the uprising that occurred two years into Gilbert Talley's tenure when the prisoners started a food fight in the chow hall, which quickly escalated into, you know, from food to chairs and tables being thrown, came pretty dangerous. And the guard up in the nest, this little balcony up above, he had a shotgun and some knockout gas. He blasted down into the dining hall, and as the prisoners are all running to flee outside. Well, I'll let uh, one of the oral histories here tell you what happens next. Uh, poor old Cap Tally. Um. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can tell you a little story about oh, Cap Tally. Oh, yeah, do. We had a little riot in the dining room one time, 
and Cap Tally was in the dining room, and they started throwing things around, you know, and uh, <laughs> Cap Tally got the name of Chocolate Slim because he was going out the window and somebody hit him in the rear end with a chocolate pudding. <laughs> and they, they, they called Chocolate Slim after that. <laughs> One of my favorite. Oh, it's so funny. So based on oral histories, I, I yeah, the old put in pants, that's why I used to call it, but Chocolate Slim. Um, he was pretty respected by prisoners during this whole tenure. And, but, you know, the prison population, they knew where they stood with him. He was honest. He was frank. If he told you he was going to knock you, knock you down, he would knock you down. <laughs> and that, they, they respected that because he was a man of his word. Often in some oral histories, they said that new prisoners, especially young, young ones, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids, first-timers, they would come in and he would take them to the solitary confinement, the punishment cells, Siberia, and the cooler. He would throw them in there. He'd slam the door. And he would leave him in for, for like three, four hours. Ugh. And he said, do you like that? You don't, do you? And he would drag him out. And he's like, if you ever mess up, that's where you're going. And it's not for three or four hours. It's three or four months. And so he said most of the time, those guys, it was a good lesson for them. He also liked to call prisoners uh, a certain name. This prisoner here, his name is Dean Thompson, and this oral history is taken with him in the Ada County Jail on March 16th, 1982, and he's reflecting on old Cap Tally here. One time, Cap Tally and some visitors come through there, and he called everybody not here. That's everybody, not here. And this is back in the 30s, 50s, 49s. And these big shots came through there, and this guy put his hat back there. Somebody stole it. It was on there eating. And he got up there and there was an old saying, Oh, which one of you not had stole this one time? So, so what he's saying is uh, basically Cap Tally brought in some, some big wigs, like the governor, maybe the lieutenant governor, and one of them set their hat down and one of the prisoners stole it. And uh, he comes back, he's like, all right, which one of you not had stole this son of a bitch's hat? And uh, <laughs> they quickly turned it over to him. So, not head. Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> now, Albert McGee, or Al Mack, I'll call him Al throughout this, he was uh, most likely born Edward Henry McGee to a Scotch-Irish family on August 26, 1900, and... Uh, he had a pretty expansive prison record um, throughout the country, mostly the northwest, the west here. In Idaho, he stated he was born in Bakersfield, California, while in another prison, he said he was born in Arlington, California, and another in Rincon, California, and Texas. So he basically was trying to hide his identity. But I did find some records. His mother died of tuberculosis when he was 12, and his father, Henry, died when he was 16, leaving him an orphan just before the outbreak of World War I. Uh, he had a younger sister, and he took care of her until he enlisted into the military on October 3, 1916, at Los Angeles. And he joined the California National Guard Coast Artillery and uh, reported for federal service the following year on August 5, 1917. He was court-martialed the following year on October 22, 1918, for assault and attempted robbery. He had been drunk. 
he went out on the street and he had his pistol out he shoved it in the face of this woman said give me all your money and was was busted pretty quickly after that and he got sent to alcatraz which was the military prison at this point so he is dishonorably discharged a month after arriving at Alcatraz, November 15th, 1918, and then he's released from that prison on July 19th, 1919. Then not long after that, he is received at San Quentin Prison for robbery as Edward H. McGee on May 21st, 1920, and three days after arriving at San Quentin, he is sent to Folsom on May 24th, 1920, and he spends four years there. He's actually transferred to a highway road camp in Shasta County, but he escapes from there on June 1st, 1924. And he heads north. He goes to Washington, and he finds himself in a little bit more trouble. He's arrested for first-degree robbery under the name James Gunderson on February 26th, 1925. And he had heard about a craps game going on in the basement of this uh, mechanic shop, and he, he barges in with a gun. He tells the manager up front, take me down to this craps game. So he's got the gun on the guy's back, and they go down to the bottom, and he, there's six taxi drivers and another guy up against the wall, give me all your, all your money. And so they start handing him their money, and uh, someone drops change. And as he bends over to pick up the change, they pounce on him and just beat him, beat him senseless. So... You know, police come, he's taken to the hospital, and then he is lodged in the Washington State Penitentiary. And he gets to spend some time there, and uh, he's actually released. He actually is written up 19 times, so he's constantly in trouble while in Walla Walla in Washington State Penitentiary. And he's released on parole October 8th, 1930, and uh, actually sent back to California to serve out his sentence for the escape. And uh, he's released eight years later from California, February 28th, 1938. So he spent basically 1918 to 1938 between California, you know, San Quentin, Alcatraz, Folsom, and then Walla Walla. And uh, he's put on parole, and he's on parole for three years, and he's finally released 1941 free man. So he heads east. He gets married to a woman named Jean Francis in March of 1944. And then on June 3rd, 1945, he's arrested in Colorado for a confidence game. And I couldn't find any details on what his confidence game was, but it seemed like in Colorado that was mostly to do with bad check writing. Mm. He is released from there on parole, and he decides to come to Idaho. And uh, Al had all kinds of different jobs throughout his life. His whole career, he had worked as a, a sales clerk and a mechanic. And there's this specific note that he was very skilled in auto mechanics for vehicles up to and around 1942. So probably he had been working on these vehicles yeah. in prisons most of his life. He was also a skilled artist. He worked as a sign painter and an engraver, and he engraved decals on jewelry and watches. And in the mid-1950s, he came to Boise to work and found a job downtown on 9th Street here at a furniture store. He kind of finds out that the uh, building next door, they, they kind of run, run a loose ship. And on August 21st, 1954, it's a Saturday afternoon, this business is closed. He decides, you know what, I'm going to go in and help myself at the N.J. Gordon Home Furnishing Shop in this little upholstery uh, section. And he extracts the window pane, climbs inside. It's like noon on a Saturday. What? 
he collects all these paintbrushes and all these other supplies that he's going to need. Maybe he's got a side hustle going on. Oh, I'll probably return these the next day. I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> but as he's about to climb back out the window with his, with his loot, two employees from the shop walk in and catch him red-handed. And so as you see here, he enters two pleas. At first, he, he pleads not guilty and then pleads guilty and is sentenced for burglary in the second degree and sentenced to a term not to exceed five years. So this is kind of interesting. This is uh, what we call the Bertillon, the Bertillion. Um, <laughs> we never know how to say it. Yeah, we don't. So, so this is basically all the prisoners that would come in. They would stand nude in front of the warden or the administrator, and they would mark any dif- distinguishing features. So you can see he's got vaccination. He has good teeth. He has a scar on his forehead. He also has a swastika on his oh, boy. left forearm, oh, which boy. I... That's not great. This is the only time I've never seen that, and especially for somebody in you know the 1950s i just was so surprised by this i couldn't find any connection maybe there was there was a group in washington i don't or, like it yeah <laughs> it's not great <laughs> that's good i that's, don't that's i don't that's i agree with you that that's it's weird timing and mm-hmm. he didn't serve in the war or anything right. yeah. and he's not german as far right. as we know He's huh. like Scotch Irish. It's a decade after World War Two. Huh. It's so. I wonder when he so got strange. it. Maybe he did get it during the war, and he's yeah. Certain ideologies that we. I don't know. I just don't want to talk that about. Was so interesting, yeah. Hmm. So, about a month after his intake, he is uh, put on his first job assignment, working for the prison magazine, The Clock, and their offices at that time were in Number Two Yard, where the Idaho Botanical Gardens are now. And uh, here's some examples. The clock actually ran from 1947 until 1975, so it actually moved to the current institution. Um, the old pen closed in 1973. And you can see this range, uh, 1952, this one's in 1963, this is, I think, 1971, and this is 1973. The 1971 one is actually just like a big newspaper. And the prisoners, they wrote, they edited, they printed, they shipped all of these across the nation it was it was kind of a passion project mm-hmm. that was started that you know obviously it, it worked out and uh well al got the job as the cartoonist for the clock and uh you might <laughs> see a connection here he actually he did decals during 1955 and, and early 1956, um, cartoons all around the, the newspaper, but he had this series that ran all through 1955 called Knothead, and it's all about old Cap Tally. So um, <laughs> I will show you some of the highlights, some of my favorites here. Um, this first one, this it's so interesting that it shows such a good depiction of what it was like. This looks like a cell at the old mm-hmm. pen. And this, this fellow is saying, this bunk blanket is just what I need to make a rope. And all, all I need is a hook. I'll make it out of a cell bar. Now I'll throw it on top of the wall and hook it up on myself and escape. It's a cinch. I'll make it now. Ha. Huh? What the? Er, something's gone wrong. The jig's up. And then, of course, Cap Tally, not head, do you hear me, scoundrel? Let me down. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. But this actually happened in 1918. There was a prisoner that he actually made a a rope out of yarn, and he tossed it over the wall with a hook at the end, climbed up and out. He actually was successful. (laughs) This fellow here was not. (laughs) This other one, I love this. This is one of my favorites. So the barbershop, usually part of your intake is getting shaved and 
they were getting a trim and they had very strict rules about how long your hair could be and you couldn't have facial hair and all that so here's old cap tally uh i'll show you not heads how i used to cut hair at the sheep ranch i'm an old-time barber and when I cut hair, it stays cut for one heck of a long time. Har, har, that will teach the knothead to get his own, his own hair cut when he needs it. Har, har, who's next? Uh, Cat Tally gives knothead a free lesson in haircutting. I, I just love that. And I love the depiction of him. Like, he looks just like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, look at the, uh, this is actually the mid-1950s here, the prison barber shop. Um, I think he captures it pretty well. Typically, it wasn't a guard or the yard mm-hmm. captain who's cutting your hair. That's probably a punishment if that's happening. It's usually another prisoner that's cutting your hair, which still happens today. Another big thing, a lot of oral histories talk about Cap Tally being uh, so intense about food waste. And so you see this prisoner here. He grabbed this heaping mound of food, and then he can't quite finish it. He's, he's seeing Cap Tally telling him, don't waste food, but he still tries to scrape it, and he gets booted out. And often these prisoners, they could be locked up in solitary confinement if they were to waste any food. Um, here's the inside of the chow hall. You can see these actual, you know, prevent waste, don't waste food, like all these little signs that Cap Tally was probably the one who painted those on the wall. <laughs> the rules in the dining hall were pretty strict. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could fit up to 320 men in there, and it was a silent system. So 320 men silently eating. You got a guard up in this nest with a shotgun and a tear gas gun. It was probably easy to enforce. but And for the most part, didn't they all, they all basically sat at tables all facing one way? Yeah. So yeah. you all were facing... These really narrow tables you can see in the yeah. bottom left photo here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this one, <laughs> this I feel like is like a daydream. Um, so the guards up on the wall, they, fat they guard, it's a fat guard. <laughs> I was trying to, I went through the photos cause we actually have photos mm-hmm. of the guards around this time period. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't tell which one he could, could have been trying to represent, but, uh, oh, I love that. This guard just slipping and falling. And this, this wall that surrounds the prison was constructed in 1894. If you go out there, you can still see where they've like remortared and tried to repoint the wall and and replace stone and here you can actually see one of those restricted area deadline so on the inside of the wall there's about 16 to 18 feet of sand that would be well groomed every day so any footprints or debris any funny business in this deadline these these guards would be able to spot that and then this this is just just mean fun i love this <laughs> It looks just like him. I love it. This little turkey here. <laughs> and I I feel like this might be a self-portrait of uh, old Al McGee here, Al Mac, mm. as he went by. And it's one of the last one of the last uh, things, and I, I think it's probably for good reason. It's kind of a mean one. <laughs> uh, this is the very last one, December 1955. I think it's just the last time Al Mac is trying to get one over. You can see uh, they're playing checkers as he walks by. They flip it over and turn it into a game of dice, which you were not allowed to do. You weren't allowed to gamble or do any of that. And then up there on the wall, I love this, the officer literally sweeping the dust underneath this, you know, capstone rug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not everything was fun in games. You know, he, he yeah, actually did sure. put some really thoughtful things in there. These are 
are the feelings that people who are serving sentences and people who are released from prison, they're going to feel these same things, public apathy, repression, mm -hmm. detainers, revenge, long sentences, capital punishment, brutality, these things that hang over your head after serving time. So what's is this one just like a, the first one just a doodle and the second one is what got published? Because the capital punishment brutality, I find that a very interesting change from one to another. These were actually two separate months. Oh, so he wow, just okay. kind of built on, it was actually he did this several times and, and this was like the last page. So this is what people, you mm. know, as they're reading this, this magazine of these prisoners, this is the last thing that they see. And up above it, uh, I didn't include it, but it would include the number of prisoners that were serving time at, at mm. that point and the high number. So the latest prisoner to come in, you know, 8,453 and then the low number, you know, 1,128 or something, you know. So Al does his job. He does it well. And he's actually released on September 4th, 1956, serving exactly two years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And he was immediately apprehended uh -huh. yep. by that authorities yeah, at the Colorado State Prison to serve the rest of his time for breaking parole from the confidence ah. game charge. Mm -hmm. And from there, I actually don't know what happened to Albert McGee, number 8974, but I'd like to hope that he reflected on the crossroad and chose industry over crime. We can and, only hope. <laughs> yeah. With that... Does anybody have any questions before we go today? Yeah. Um, were copies of the clock distributed to the public outside of the prison? Were copies of the clock distributed to outsiders? Yes, actually. And and you could, uh, it was like $1.25, you could get a year subscription of the clock. And so, you know, that was, that was you know, 15, 20 bucks at that time. But the prisoners would ship it and they shipped it to other prisons as well. Mm -hmm. And so, and there was a, there were penal press awards and the clock actually won a bunch of, of awards for their magazine work. Uh, they were pretty industrious. They did a, a really good job with it. And it's an amazing resource. We have almost mm -hmm. every uh, edition of it at the Idaho State Archives. So if you're ever interested in this, come check it out. Or if you reach out to us, we have them all digitized now too. So um, I, this is like, I nerd out. I just open up the <laughs> clock every once in a while. I'm like, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> Did they print it there? Yes, yeah. And and I've actually found a lot of bids for, you know, different mimeograph machines and different printing ink and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to actually take you out there. This is my father-in-law, by the way. <laughs> so who who has been in the printing business, you know, most of his life. And so I'd love to show you some of these old printing machines that we actually still have at the prison and, and part of our collection. It's, a, it's amazing that we still have some of these things. So, yeah, any other questions? Yeah, in the back. Any other like prisoner media that they were doing? Like, was there any sort of broadcast stuff or anything like that besides the print? Any other prisoner media besides print? Um, yes, they're there. They had a recording studio, mm -hmm. and it's considered like one of the first recording studios in the state, according to you know most histories I found. And um, I we've done an episode. Mm -hmm. Last tree for it, I think actually wasn't it? Oh, we talked man. about it. I think it may have been. I don't. Know. Our memories are right. so bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th there was a, a prisoner. I can't remember his name, but he recorded this this song uh, while away from w whiskey, wild women, and beer, mm -hmm. and um, it became popular and and played on all the local radio stations. And he would actually be brought out in shackles to radio stations in town to perform live 
broadcasts. Like it's crazy. And then he'd be re-handcuffed and brought back to the prison. And yeah, yeah. So they had that is. And what else did they have? Did they have anything else? You know better than I do at yeah. this point. Right right now in prisons, you know, of course, there's like Ear Hustle on mm-hmm. uh, San Quentin's mm-hmm. podcast that, that's produced by prisoners there. And Colorado is actually pretty progressive. They they mm. have they just started a radio station that's run by the incarcerated mm. population. That's a public broadcast. That's it's like, cool. you know, BSU, but at Colorado State Penitentiary. <laughs> so pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. And. Idaho currently, we don't have anything like that, but um, there there are a couple prison blogs uh, run by prisoners that are currently incarcerated. Uh, I've I've pestered the chief of prisons several times and asked, uh, you know, is this a possibility? Is this something that you guys would be interested in restarting the clock? You know, the old classic uh, newspaper and magazine, but. You know, I'm going to keep working on that and <laughs> hopefully it's just such a it's a fascinating outlet for the men and women who are in these institutions. And this is just a glimpse like it humanizes the experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's making fun of this yard captain, but it just shows that connection that the people that are working out there have with the men who are serving time out there as well. So, yeah. Any other questions, comments, last words? Yeah. I listened to your episode on boxing and like the Royale battles. I um, just recently watched a play called the Royale, so it was, just, it was an interesting time. <laughs> that the Al Repertory Theater did. Um, but just seeing that it's March Madness, I was wondering if you know any history about basketball games. Any history about oh, basketball games? I don't know. The only thing I know about that court is for so long I tried to get Amber to do like a fundraising event where we did like a half court three on three basketball tournament and she never went for it. I still think it's a good idea, yeah. but yeah, we that's yeah, and and that they, I mean, I don't think basketball's not mentioned a ton of all the it's sports. Not. It's mostly boxing and baseball. Yeah, baseball's the head. Yeah, I, there there are some <laughs> mentions like in oral history that they would play basketball if if you come to the old bend there's the big basketball mm-hmm. court and there's a hoop that's right next to the deadline uh they often did not shoot at that hoop mm-hmm. because if their ball rolled into the deadline it became target practice <laughs> yeah no so one could go get it often it was half court you know heading towards one of the cell houses yeah. there <laughs> yeah but other than that you know we don't we don't hear a lot i i bet if i dig into some of the mm-hmm. the clocks from the mm-hmm. late 60s early 70s when they actually put that court in there I bet I could find some because they did do like leagues with each other, and mm-hmm. sometimes if they could get the league good enough and get permission to do so, they could go play teams outside. Um, but I, I'm sure we we've seen it in the clock. We just haven't paid that yeah. close attention to that sort of stuff, which unfortunately, <laughs> so much information to know fitting <laughs> everything into We're this brain. Nerds, yeah, right? seriously. <laughs> All right, any but other good question. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, Make sure to do your own time. And make sure to do your own number. Thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your tree for it. See you all. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 